Good morning, Trinity Church. How are you doing this morning? You, you look great. You look like you're doing well. How many of you are excited about the lease on the new building? Excited about that? That's why we plan to meet in here for the next uh, month or so, uh, so that we can all get ready and be really excited about that new building that we're going to go into. And so we're looking forward to that. I'm going to be excited and uh, looking forward to making that move. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm glad that you're here. Please come and introduce yourself uh, after our service. I'd love to meet you and get to know who you are and uh, answer any questions that you may have. We have a very long section of scripture this morning. We come to Acts chapter 10 and 11. Acts chapter 10 and 11 uh, for our scripture passage this morning that we'll be focusing on. And so, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Titus chapter 2. I didn't misspeak. Turn to Titus chapter 2 and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. It would be well worth our time to read all of Acts chapter 10 and 11 this morning for our scripture reading. Hopefully you read it this week in preparation for the service this morning. That's what you're supposed to be doing during the week is reading the passage that we're going to be dwelling on. So hopefully you did that. But I I decided to take a passage this morning that perfectly, perfectly summarizes Acts chapter 10 and 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Look at it there as I read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the main idea of the text we're looking at this morning, Acts chapter 10 and 11. It's a significant text. Significant in the unfolding story of God's redemption of his people. When we come to Acts chapter 10 you'll notice that the narrative slows down and spends a lot of time explaining to you the events that take place. Now this is a clue for us. I'm going to help you in your Bible reading. When you're reading the Bible and you come in a narrative to a place where the narrative slows down and the narrative takes a long time to tell you something, that is because the section of Scripture is very significant. And the writer wants you to know how significant it is that what you're reading. And Acts chapter 10 and 11 is extremely significant for us. We also see that right before Acts chapter 10, you have two, two mini stories, two small stories, where the focus for the reader is taken back to the Apostle Peter. For the last couple of chapters, our focus in Acts has been off of Peter. Philip, remember, Philip went to Samaria. And then we have a a passage uh, that focuses on the conversion of Saul. 
So now the writer of Acts takes our focus back to Peter and, and wants us to remember who Peter is, his significance for this unfolding plan of God's redemption. And he gives us two stories to take our attention back to Peter before he gives us this very significant portion of Scripture. The other thing that this passage does is it takes our focus to a town called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea, if you, don't, if you don't have the biblical map in your mind burned into your brain, Caesarea is on the coast of Israel. I- Israel had no natural seaport, had no natural port where they could receive ships and send ships. And so Herod the Great had built, had, had made a, a man-made seaport for Israel. And this was greatly beneficial for Israel and their economic well-being. And Caesarea is this place that Peter goes to. But you remember, remember, this is where Philip, after he evangelized Samaria and came down and preached to the Ethiopian eunuch there, he goes up to Caesarea and there he stays. Caesarea is also the place where the apostle Paul is sent to then go to Tarsus. And here we have Peter ending up at the place of Caesarea, the seaport, the only seaport for Israel. And the the communication, the subtle communication to us uh, as readers is that the gospel is getting ready to go, not just by land, but also by sea. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is going out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Caesarea will become a very important a very strategic place in that work of God. The event before us takes place in four scenes. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want to walk through this story. And I want to walk through and just explain the story as we, as we see it. it. takes place in four scenes, essentially. And then at the end of that, that summary, at the end of that explanation, I want to draw some conclusions for us. And really, my my goal, my hope for you this morning is that you would be overwhelmed by the grace of God shown towards you, that you would be overwhelmed by God's grace, the grace that he has lavished upon us in his son, Jesus Christ. So the event involving Peter here at Caesarea takes place in four scenes. First, in the first scene, we are introduced to a man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is given a description. Look at the description there. Cornelius is a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. This means that he was an officer in charge of about 100 men. He was an important man. But we also see that he was a devout man. You see that description there? He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He had led his household to fear God. He gave alms generously to the people of Israel, and he prayed continually to God. Cornelius is an example to us of one of these people who had been drawn to the God of Israel. He had been drawn to worship the God of Israel, forsake the worship of other gods, and seek to worship the God of Israel. And his devotion to the God of Israel 
even as a Gentile, he, he hadn't become a proselyte. He actually, he hadn't become Jewish. He was still a Gentile. But his devotion to the God of Israel was manifested in his generous giving to the people, financial giving to the people, and his continual prayer. It's at one of these prayer hours in the afternoon, about three o'clock in the afternoon, at one of these prayer hours, Cornelius receives a vision telling him that his devotion to God has not gone unnoticed. God has seen his devotion to him, and he is about to respond. The vision tells Cornelius to send men to Joppa, and there they will find a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. And he is to bring Peter back to this house. Now, in chapter 11, chapter 11 of the same story, verse 13 and 14, in in Peter's summary of what takes place, we see that the angelic vision tells Cornelius that Peter will come and declare a message to them by which they will be saved. So the angelic vision comes to Cornelius and and says, go to Joppa, send men to Joppa, and bring back Peter, and he will bring back a message by which you will be saved and all your household. So then Cornelius quickly responds to the vision and sends three men to go and find Peter. And he's motivated by this desire Right to hear the important message. He wants to know what God has to say. So then the story shifts to the next scene. That was the first scene. The second scene, we find Peter at noontime, also praying and waiting for a meal. He was hungry. While he's waiting on the meal, he also experiences a vision from God. And in this vision, a sheet... Now, if you, uh, if you look that up in your Bible concordance or whatever, your, your, your word finder, you'll find that that's exactly what, what it means. It's a sheet, a great linen sheet, like a sail. And this sheet is full of something, full of animals. Again, this is a vision that he's having. But not just any animals. These animals were unclean according to the law for for the Jewish people. They were unclean to eat. And as this sheet full of animals is being shown to Peter, a voice tells Peter that he is to rise, to kill, and eat. Well, the response from Peter demonstrates how surprising this command is because he says, By no means, Lord. By no means. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And this response, this refusal of Peter to rise and eat, brings a key point in the narrative. The response from heaven is this. What God has made clean, do not call common. This this is a very surprising statement in the narrative. This would have been very hard to hear for a Jewish person. Is God going against the law that he's given? 
Is God contradicting himself here in what he wants for his people? It's so hard to believe, in fact, that the vision appears two more times, a total of three times. The same vision happens for Peter to verify the message, to verify that this is indeed from God. Now, after the visions conclude, Peter is left pondering, what does this mean? What's the purpose of this? What's the meaning of all of this? And as he's pondering, we see that the three men Cornelius has sent arrive at his house at that very hour, looking for him. And the Spirit speaks to Peter, saying, rise and go down and accompany these men without hesitation, for I've sent them. Now, again, in Peter's summary, we learn a lot from Peter's summary in chapter 11. In Peter's summary in chapter 11, we see that the Spirit explicitly tells Peter to go with them without making distinction. Really important. Without making distinction. So then Peter invites them in to be his guests. It's too late in the day for them to journey back to Caesarea. So he invites them in to be his guests. And this is significant. Right? Don't pass by this note too quickly. Peter is beginning to put into practice what he has just heard. These Gentiles are no longer unclean. He can have them in his home, fellowship with them there. And yet Peter does not fully realize what the meaning is. So then we, we find scene three. So scene one has Cornelius receiving a vision. Scene two has Peter receiving a vision, telling him to rise up and eat. He says, not so, Lord. He says, no, what, I, what God has called uh, clean, do not call common. And then we see scene three. Scene three takes us to the house of Cornelius. Do you know what, do you know what Cornelius has been doing ever since he sent the men off? What has Cornelius been doing ever since, ever since he sent the men off to go find Peter? Well, he's been busy. He's been inviting his friends and his relatives to come to his house. He, he, he's been inviting friends and relatives to come. There's going to be a man from God who's going to come, and he's going to share with us a message from God about salvation. Come and listen. Come and hear. And so he's rounding up all these people. I can see him rounding them all up in his house. You get the sense that Cornelius knows what they're going to hear is very important. When Peter arrives, Cornelius falls at his feet and begins to worship him. Cornelius assumes that Peter, this messenger, is divine. Peter says, stand up, stand up. I too am a man. In other words, he says, I'm a man just like you. Again, significant. I'm a man just like you. When Peter enters the home, he makes sure to make the point that he should not be there. He says, you know it's not right for a Jew to come into a Gentile's house. You know, this is against the law. I'm not supposed to, to mingle with you. I'm not supposed to have anything to do with you. He makes the point that he's not supposed to be there, but that God has told him that the Gentiles are no longer unclean or that he should not make distinction. And so he has come in obedience to God. And then he asks the question of Cornelius, why have you sent for me? 
Why, why did you send for me? What do you, what, do you, what do you want? Why am I here? And I love the response of Cornelius. Cornelius recounts the vision from a couple of days, days before. And then he says, so I sent for you and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius has been told that Peter has a message that will lead to his salvation and the salvation of his household. Now, Peter had received a vision that was very perplexing for him, very confusing for him, and he had been told to go with these Gentile, Gentile men without objection. So, so there was no direct command in the vision to give any kind of message. But, but you will remember, Peter has been given a command to give a message. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus to testify, to be a witness of what he had seen. So Peter starts his explanation. Peter starts his message with this. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable or does what is right is acceptable to him. So in this, in this, get this, bear with me here, okay? Peter expresses a sentiment here that is not, in fact, new. He, he's, he's expressing a sentiment that had been uh, prevalent throughout the entire Old Testament. Pervasive, even, throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the biblical storyline, Gentiles, Gentiles have been drawn to the God of Israel throughout the entire story. Can you think of any Gentiles that came to worship the God of Israel in the Old Testament? Can you think of any Gentiles? And by, by the way, do you know what Gentiles are? I may, maybe I don't need to assume that you know what Gentiles are. In the Bible, there are two groups of people. The Bible only sees two groups of people, okay? Jew and Gentile. Those are the two groups of people. Those that are Jews are those that God has placed his favor upon, his saving favor. And those that are Gentiles are those that are outside of that group, okay? But all through the Old Testament, the Gentiles, several Gentiles had been drawn to worship the God of Israel. Think of Ruth. Think of uh, Rahab. Think of Naaman. I mean, there, there's, there's so many examples in the Old Testament of Gentiles coming to worship the God of Israel. And that's what Peter says. Peter says, I know that God shows no partiality in every nation. Anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. Anyone can come and be a part of the Jewish people. So he expresses a sentiment that finds itself all, the, all throughout the Old Testament. Peter goes on to say there, right, that the word that had been given for Israel. So he's not expressing a new thought. And he starts here with the word that had been given for Israel. Look at it there. In uh, verse number, if I can turn my page here, 
Look at it there in verse number uh, 35 and 36. He says, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel. So he starts there with the word that has been sent to Israel. And what is this word? What is this word that God had delivered to Israel? It is a word of the good news of peace accomplished through Jesus the King. He, Peter says, is Lord of all. So he, so he comes in and says, I know that God is not showing partiality. Gentiles too can come to worship God and be acceptable to him. And here is the word that God delivered to Israel. This is a word, this is a good news of peace accomplished through Jesus the King. And he goes on to say, I, I know you're familiar with this story. I know you're familiar. He assumes their familiarity with the events that had taken place. He says, a man named John had come telling Israel that the anticipated kingdom was on its way. He was baptizing those who were believing his message and turning from their sin in anticipation of the coming kingdom and the coming king. That king, he goes on to say, that king was the anointed one of God who came in the person of Jesus. Jesus proved who he was. In the power of God's spirit, doing good and showing his power and authority over Satan. Peter, Peter goes on to say, we, the apostles, we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We saw it all with our own eyes, he says. But then, what did they do to Jesus for all that he was and all that he did? What did they do to Jesus? The Jewish people did not receive him as God's authoritative king, but rejected him and killed him by hanging him on a cursed tree. But that is not the end of the story. He goes on. God raised him up. God established his king in the resurrection. By his resurrection, he's proven to be God's appointed king. Peter goes on to say that Jesus did not appear to everyone after his resurrection, but to those who had been chosen to be his witnesses, testifiers of the truth that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Everyone, Peter says, who will believe in the name of Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins. Now, again, we're just recounting the story here at this point. This is what Peter says. Everyone at this point who will believe in the name of Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins. And it is at this point in the story that something unexpected happens. Peter did not expect it. None of the Jewish believers that are with him are expecting it. While he is yet speaking, while the word is still even in his mouth, those who will believe on his name will receive forgiveness of sins. While he's even speaking, the Holy Spirit is poured out on those listening, just like on the day of Pentecost. Now, next week, next week, we're going to take some time. Jeremy's going to take some time next week, and he's going to talk about the giving of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We can't, we can't stop and do that every time we want to.
but he's going to spend some time on the giving of the Holy Spirit and the tongues, the, the sign of tongues that comes with the giving of the Holy Spirit and the significance of that throughout the book of Acts. We're going to talk about that kind of, it's a theological sermon next week. But here we see the Holy Spirit poured out on those listening, just like on the day of Pentecost. The pouring out of the Spirit here in Acts 10 signals that these listening have believed, even as Peter is talking, they have believed in the name of Jesus. So, so Cornelius gathers all these people up and they are ready to listen. And as Peter is speaking, they are ready to believe. And he says, everyone who believes in the name of Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins. And as he's speaking, the Holy Spirit is poured out on these people. They have received Christ as Savior, evidenced in the giving of the Holy Spirit. This visible sign of the Holy Spirit, then, being given to them, is enough for Peter. He stops right there, and he asks the question, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter now understands fully the meaning of the vision he received on his rooftop. The Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit, are being marked by the Holy Spirit just as the Jewish people have been who believe upon the name of Jesus. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? So he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he stayed with them. Again, don't pass by that too quickly. He stays with them. He eats with them. He lives with them for many days. He now is experiencing fellowship, unhindered fellowship with Gentiles, joining with them in fellowship. But our story is not yet done. The concluding scene shows Peter going up to Jerusalem and being accused by the believers there of fellowshipping and eating with Gentiles. So he goes up there in chapter 11 to Jerusalem And the Jewish believers and the apostles say, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why why are you eating with Gentiles? Why are you staying and fellowshipping with Gentiles? Don't you know the law? You can't do that. This is not what a Jewish person should do. And then Peter gives his summary. His summary of the event and what happened. He recounts the vision and his initial hesitation. He recounts the men taking him to Cornelius and the direction given him by the Lord, Lord not to discriminate and to go with them. And then he tells what happened while he was telling him about Jesus. He says, I was there preaching the good news of the kingdom and God's king, and while I was yet even speaking, the Holy Spirit's poured out on them. And then the response of the Jewish believers gives us our conclusion to the story. What do they say after they hear Peter's recounting? Here's what they say there in chapter 11. Then to the Gentiles, they glorify God and say, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there's Acts chapter 10 and 11 recounted for us. So what is the main idea? Well, it is what I read, first of all, in Titus 2. God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Did you see throughout that entire story, do you see in this passage 
all of the evidences of God's grace. When you read the Bible, do you look for evidences of God's grace? Is that a question that you, you ask? Where am I seeing God's grace manifested here? Where am I seeing God's grace communicated here? In this passage, we see it covered, covered with grace, God's grace. Again, I want you to leave today overwhelmed by God's grace to his people. First, I want you to consider God's grace to Israel. God's grace to Israel. This entire event takes place against the backdrop of God's immeasurable, unrelenting, persevering grace to the Jewish people. Do you remember the story of Israel? God had graciously chosen a man named Abraham. Not because of anything that he did or anything that he was or anything that he chose, but because God chose him by his grace. God takes Abraham out of the pagan nations and he says, I'm going to make to you a promise. God chooses to graciously link himself with Abraham by grace in covenant relationship. He makes a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember what the sign of that covenant was? What's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that God makes with Abraham? Circumcision. Circumcision. Circumcision then is a mark. Very important. Circumcision is a mark that communicates God's grace upon a certain family, a certain people. God graciously chooses Abraham and then graciously makes covenant with him and puts his mark of grace upon Abraham. A mark that is circumcision. It says, circumcision says, you belong to me. You are mine. My favor is upon you. My blessing is for you. Now, when when you and I hear the word circumcision... We think law. We think bad, right? Restricting, old. But in fact, circumcision is grace. Grace and favor, a mark of grace and favor upon the people of Israel. And that leads us then to a broader discussion of the entire law. God graciously delivers Abraham's descendants from Egypt and what we call the Exodus. Very important moment in the Old Testament. He takes them out of Egypt by miraculous deliverance, his gracious deliverance of his people. And then upon their deliverance, upon their redemption from Egypt, he takes them to a mountain where he graciously reveals himself to Moses, their leader, and gives them the law. Do you remember what's happening while he's giving them the law? Do you remember what's happening in the story? They're down at the bottom of the mountain in in the very presence of God revealing his glory. They're, They're there at the bottom of the mountain making an idol, sinning openly before God. And all the while, God is graciously giving them his law. He graciously gives them a law which 
is in itself a proof and evidence of his gracious favor upon them. This is important. Hear this because it will help you in your understanding of the Bible. God doesn't give the law to Israel in order to save them. God had already saved them. He had already taken them out of Egypt. God had already delivered them. God had already redeemed them. The law is given to them not to save them, but because they are saved. The law is given to Israel because they are his people, not to make them his people. And so the law is a mark of grace upon their life. In the law, he tells them how to live. The law is good. It is just. The law is wise. The law is beautiful. So often we hear law and grace taught almost as if they're in opposition to one another. Law and grace are not in opposition to one another. The law is grace to God's people, Israel. It's favor upon their life. And this law is to be how they live before the view of the entire rest of the world. It is to be a crown of glory for them. It is to distinguish them from the world so that the world can see that the true God lives in Israel. This separation from the world is meant to draw the world to them and to the worship of their God. And this is, this is where we see people like Cornelius come in. Cornelius had been a recipient of that vision. He had, he had received that truth regarding the God of Israel. He saw the law. He saw that God, the true God, was the God of Israel. He had been drawn to them. And the best he knew how, he was worshiping that God and leading his household to worship that God. He's an evidence of the work of that grace. The law is meant to separate Israel from the world so that the world can be drawn to the true God. And that is why God wants his people to be separate. God wants his people to be distinguished. He cares a lot about marking off his people as separate from the world. But in spite of all this grace, God had graciously graciously delivered them and graciously given them a law and graciously put his favor upon them. But in spite of all this grace, Israel continued to reject God. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? Well, yes, you can imagine that because that's in fact what we do. That's in fact who we are. Israel continues to reject God and his grace They sinned over and over and over and over again against God, eventually leading God to, get this, graciously judge them. Did you know that you can't separate God's judgment from his grace? God God judges, God disciplines those that he loves. Judgment and discipline 
is so much an outpouring of grace. He's showing his care for them. He's showing his care for his name and his glory by judging them. And this gracious judgment leads the people of Israel into captivity by foreign nations. But even in that, God gives them a gracious promise. Do you remember what that promise is? God says, when I take you out of this captivity, and I will take you out of this captivity one day. He says, when I take you out of this captivity, I will accomplish something for you that has never been seen before. I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit in you that you will keep, that you will want to keep all of my statutes and judgments and commandments. God says, I'm going to save you, people. (laughs) I'm going to save you, Israel. I'm going to save you in such a way that it will make you forget about the first salvation from Egypt. That's what he tells them. Do you see God's unrelenting grace for his people? God will not be denied in his love and grace for his people. And we see this culminate, we see this culminate in the appearance of Jesus. So I want you to see first God's grace to Israel, God's unrelenting, persevering grace to Israel. So important to understand. But then I want you to see God's grace culminating in the appearance of Jesus. God, after all of this, after all of Israel's unfaithfulness, God then graciously keeps his promise. He graciously sends his king. He he sends John the Baptist to go before him, graciously to go before him and announce that the king is coming and the kingdom is soon to appear. And so you are to make yourselves ready. Turn from your sin. Wash yourselves. The king is coming. When Jesus appears, he makes it abundantly clear that Jesus, this one, is his chosen son, his beloved son. He makes it clear that Israel is to listen to him and obey his words. And all of this is grace for his people. He clothes Jesus in power and authority, even over the devil and his enemies, all his demons. He demonstrates who he is through miraculous signs and inexplicable wonders, all the grace that he is revealing and showing to Israel. But what do they do with this grace? What does Israel do with the grace that has been given them? What does Israel do? They kill him. Israel kills grace. Can you imagine that? Think about that. Israel kills grace. They, they kill the very manifestation of love itself. You see, pe- people don't want love and grace. We act like people want love and grace. People don't want love and grace. People want, we want our sin. 
You don't, you don't believe that. Look at Jesus. If anyone, if anyone should have received grace and love, it was that generation that saw with their own eyes Jesus. And they killed him. This, this is such an important point. When we look at Jesus, why, why wouldn't we want to give him our life? Why wouldn't we want to bow and surrender everything to him? He is the very definition of grace. Why would we not give him everything? We too want our sin. We don't want his grace because we love our sin. We love ourselves. You and I want a version of Jesus where somehow he is okay with our sin. Where we can separate his love and grace from removing our sin from us. No, his love and grace. His love and grace wants to remove our sin from us. He's not okay with our sin. He's not okay with mankind's sin. He is full of truth and grace, grace that wants to rescue from sin. So what did Israel do with all the grace that they had been shown, culminating in the person of Jesus? As John tells us, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Well, how did God respond to their rejection of grace? God doesn't take no for an answer. He is unrelenting in his grace. What does God do? He raises up the very one that they killed. He raises up Jesus and he pronounces Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. And in this we see, in this we see God's great grace. The rejection of Israel actually worked God's plan to accomplish what is needed for man's salvation, for Israel's salvation. We see God's grace and his wisdom. And this is in fulfillment of what was graciously promised. He is willing to cleanse them from their sin by his perfect and final sacrifice in his son. He is ready to receive them as his people. Jesus is ready to be their king if they will turn from their sin and believe upon his name. What grace. He does not give them what they deserve. He works by his own sacrifice, by his own death and resurrection, he works to accomplish their salvation. And then he graciously appoints men to take the good news of his gracious offer to be their king, to rid them of their sin by his sacrifice and establish God's kingdom in his own name. He appoints men to take that message to the entire globe. 
And this brings us to a very interesting point. And I want you to hear this. If you've, if you've dozed off or if you've uh, been thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch or whatever, check back in real quick. This brings us to a very inter- interesting point and one that I want you to hear and one that I, I don't know whether or not you've considered. When Peter and his disciples, and the, the disciples of Jesus, when Peter and the disciples are commissioned by Jesus to go and be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, I think that you and I hear in that, go tell everyone in the world about Jesus and his love for them. But that is not what the disciples would have heard. That's not what the disciples heard. Here's what the disciples heard. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth and bring my people, that is the Jewish people, this news of my kingdom and of the salvation I have accomplished by my grace for them. So the disciples would have heard, and this is right along with what they asked in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, but I want you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I want you to do what? I want you to gather in my people. And who is his people? Israel. And that's what Peter and the disciples would have heard. Go and bring in my people Israel, because I've done exactly what I promised to do. It's time to go tell them. Go get them. Bring them in. And this is why he tells Peter, you're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to go catch my people and bring them back to be my people. And I will be their king. Well, this gives us the context for our passage today. Peter and all the other disciples knew that God's plan was in no way excluding other nations. However, he is the God of Israel. His kingdom as demonstrated by their question in chapter 1, right? He is for Israel. While foreigners could come to fear God and worship the true God, the same as they always had, never would have been a part of their expectation or their understanding that God, this is so important to what's going on in chapter 10, God is redrawing the lines of demarcation for his people. God is redrawing the lines. No longer are his people identified by the lines of Israel, by the law, by circumcision, by the dietary laws. No longer are his people marked off by the law and by circumcision. Not because they weren't grace. Oh, they were grace. They were signs of God's favor upon his people. But now God is redrawing those lines. It would not have been a part of their expectation. This would have been surprising for Peter and the other disciples. And this provides a better context for the passage that we all know, right? John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. What what does that mean? For God loved the world in this way. We we need better definition. You know what's being said in John chapter 3, verse 16? For God loved the world in this way. What he's saying is, my love is no longer just for the Jewish people. My favor, my choosing love, my demonstrated love and grace is no longer just for the Jewish people. For God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The world being not just the Jewish people but both Jew 
and Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile can be God's people through his son. No longer will his people be marked by the exodus from Egypt, but now his people will be marked by the cross, by the resurrection. No longer will his people be marked by the dietary and sabbatical prescriptions by circumcision. No, now his people are marked anew. Three, three marks I want to give you for God's people today. Three marks for God's people. How do, we, how do we see God's people? How do we know who God's people are? First, and I want, I want you to see the grace, not just to Israel, I want you to see the grace culminating in Jesus Christ, which now has been used to mark us. I want you to see the grace that he's given you and me today. We are marked first by the gracious gift of repentance and faith. We talked about conversion last week. Conversion is the work of God in which he confronts the sinner with the reality of who Jesus is. And what does that reality of who Jesus is lead us to? Jesus, the truth of Jesus, leads us to repentance and faith in his name, which results in a complete reorientation of life. God's people are marked, graciously marked, by the gift of repentance and faith. And you see the union of these two inseparable graces here in this passage. Peter tells Cornelius, right? And Peter's preaching to Cornelius. He says that everyone who believes in Jesus, believes faith, everyone who believes in Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. But then look at the conclusion of the apostles. In the conclusion in chapter 11, Look at the conclusion. They say, they glorify God and they say, then to the Gentiles also God has granted or given what? Repentance that leads to life. Belief for the forgiveness of sins in his name, right? And repentance that leads to life. These are seen as one and the same. You cannot have one without the other. Is it belief that saves or is it repentance that saves? Yes. They're the same response to a glorious Jesus. You cannot have one without the other. And that's so important because they are both gifts from God. Repentance and faith are both gifts from God. And these gracious gifts are what mark out the people of God. This is what I pray for my children. I pray that God would give them the gift of repentance and faith in his son, Jesus. And I pray this for your children. We, we are blessed to have lots of children here, kids Kids, did you know that I pray for you that God would give you the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus? The Master Nardis just had their little baby in the last day or so. Esmeralda, pray for them. They had a really difficult uh, delivery. And uh, 
She had to be taken to the hospital. Everything sounds is, is okay at this point, but it was a really scary experience. Last I heard, everything is okay. If, if uh, anybody has any updates, you can tell me that. But I, I thought about them and just the, the blessing that it is to parent. Do you pray for your children that God would give them the gift of repentance and faith? And what does that mean, that they're gifts? It means we can't work them in someone ourselves. I, I can't bring my child to repentance. I can't produce in them faith. God does this, and it's his way of marking off who his people are. Don't, don't pass by this. This is so important. This is why we treat conversion seriously and the marks of conversion seriously because God has marked off his people this way. Secondly, we see that God marks his people by the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. God marks his people by repentance and faith, and God marks his people by the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives his spirit to those who are his own. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the mark by which he says, you are mine. You belong to me. This one is mine. My favor is upon them because I have given them my spirit. I have brought them in to the spiritual life of, of me and my son by my spirit. My favor is upon them. That's what he's doing when he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. To those that have been given the gift of repentance of faith, he gives his Holy Spirit. And this is the answer to the promise to his people in the Old Testament. He says, I will give you a new heart. That's repentance and faith. And I will put my spirit in you. Now, how do you know that you have the Spirit? That's a, that's a question, right? How do you know that you have the Spirit? You ever read that and you go like, well, how do, I, how do I know that I have the Spirit of God? He's not a feeling. The Spirit is not a feeling or a force. It, the Spirit isn't something we feel. And here is a simple truth. This, this is simple. I hope it's helpful for you. The Spirit, as we learned a couple weeks ago, as we thought about a couple weeks ago, the Spirit speaks the truth about who God is and who Jesus is. In other words, you can't, you can't think and believe the right things about God and His Son without the Spirit doing that work in you. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and if you believe by repentance and faith that salvation is found in His name and His name alone, and this has reoriented your life where you want to serve him and worship him. That is evidence of the spirit being given to you. The spirit speaks the truth about who God is, who Jesus is. So, so are you growing in your love for Jesus? That's why that question is important. Maybe at discipling group, somebody says, hey, how are you growing in your love for Christ? How are you growing in your love for Jesus? How are you growing in your love for his word? Do you want to obey him? Very important, very simple question, but very important question. Do you want to obey God? Do you want to serve him? Or do you find his commandments grievous, restricting, confining, unjust, unfair? Are you growing Important question, are you growing in your love for others? 
This is the evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. Growing in our love for others. Are you wanting to pursue holiness in your life? Are you wanting to pursue reconciliation with others that you're not right with? This is all the work of the Spirit. This is not our work, but God's work and proof of God's work by His Spirit in our lives. And these all are intended to be measured in the context of other believers. Did you know why? I'm trying to be really simple here. Did you know why some of you are really, it's hard for you to discern the work of the Spirit in your life? Because you isolate yourself from other people. And it's really hard to see the work of the Spirit taking place in your life when you're constantly by yourself or away from others. So many of these evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit take place in the context of the fellowship of the saints. And it's so helpful for us. As we take part with the body, we see the Spirit working in us. We see the Spirit working in others. This is what we're to do and how we're to see the work and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is for our assurance. And it leads to that, right? Some of you so worry about assurance of salvation. And a lot of it is because you've isolated yourself in so many contexts of your life. And you're just left to your thoughts and your wonderings. You drive yourself crazy. Be in fellowship with God's people. This is where we see the evidence of the work of the Spirit in our life. You see God is clearly marking his people. He's clearly marking his people by repentance and faith, by the work of the Holy Spirit. God hasn't all of a sudden from the Old Testament stopped his concern with marking off who his people are, but where his people were once marked off by circumcision, now they're marked by repentance and faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what God is doing. He wants his people to be discernible. Hear that again. He wants his people to be discernible. He wants his people to be distinguishable from the world. Why? Because through their testimony, through the distinction of his people, through the favor and the grace that he has put upon his people, he will draw men and women to himself. He's testifying to who he is through his people. If we lose, if we lose the distinction of God's people, we lose the gospel. Very important. If God's people become indiscernible, if God's people become undistinguishable or unrecognizable from the rest of the world, if God's people become indiscernible, then the message of God's salvation through Jesus Christ will be lost. And this distinction that he's given us by his grace of repentance and faith of his Holy Spirit, this is meant to be the basis, this identity, this mark that he's placed upon our lives is to be the identity for us that is to give basis to our unity together, to our pursuit of holiness together. And one more point, one more point, and I'm done. Repentance and faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit, these are marks that he has placed upon his people. This is how he's marking off his people. But he has also given a physical sign, a physical sign. Repentance and faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit is not physical. 
He has given, though, for our, for our help and for our clear marking out, he has given us a physical sign. And you see it. You've actually seen it in the last several chapters. What did the Ethiopian eunuch want to do after he came to faith in Christ? He wanted to be baptized. What did they do with the Apostle Paul after he came to faith in Christ? He was baptized. What did they do to the Gentile believers when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Peter said, baptize them. And that's what we see as the physical mark of who his people are. And that's why we take it so seriously here at Trinity. Physically, the gracious gift of baptism in his name marks off those who are professing repentance and faith, those who've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, those who are professing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you see the grace that he's given you today? Do you see the grace that he has lavished upon you? Do you see the grace that he gave to Israel, setting them off as his people? The grace that culminated in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And now the grace that he's given to redraw the lines of who his people are No longer according to the law are his people identified, but now in his son. That's how we are identified. That's how his people are identified. What grace he's given to us and what a grace it is to fellowship with you and meet with you every Sunday. What a grace it is to meet in our homes together throughout the week. What a grace it is to be in each other's lives and to point each other to the grace and the truth the Savior that we have come to know and love. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us. I pray that you would take this truth, that you would take the message of grace, the gift of grace that is your Son, and that you would overwhelm us with the position that you have given us in Christ by joining us with him and with one another. This is unmerited favor. We do not deserve it. We have done nothing to gain it in and of ourselves, but we have been saved by your grace. And I pray that you would renew our care and our diligence for these marks that you've given us repentance and faith, the giving of your Holy Spirit, that we would treasure these marks and that we would encourage each other in our lives in the grace that you've given us. I pray for those who are here who do not know Jesus. They have not come to a place of repentance and faith in his name. They have spurned your grace. They have rejected your grace to this point in their life. I pray that you would give them the gift of repentance and faith, that you would show them who you are, that you would show them their sin and what their sin deserves, death and judgment, and that you would show them clearly who Jesus is, that he has taken sin that he did not deserve to die for, but he laid his life down, dying for sin and then raising victoriously from the grave to give us salvation over sin and death and that he offers this salvation to anyone who
who will believe upon his name, that they would not perish, but have everlasting life. I pray that you'd give them the gift again of repentance and faith, and that even today you would give them your spirit, place your spirit in them, and make them your people. We pray for this in your name, for your glory. Amen.